Bibles, if you would, and let's open them to Ephesians chapter 6. And this evening we come to the last piece of armor that Paul gives us. And he says that this is one of the things that you need, along with all these other uh, pieces of armor that we've talked about. You need this in order to stand against the wiles of the devil. As we've been going through this list of different things that Paul gives us, we've noticed that there are some things here that people are in disagreement about. I mean, as far as what does Paul mean when he, mean, when he mentions each particular piece. But in this one, we have no doubt at all what Paul means by it because the Scriptures very clearly tell us what this is. It, the text says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so we definitely know what he's talking about here. All of us are very familiar with this particular weapon because everybody knows that a Christian is one who follows the Bible. I mean, that's what we're supposed to be. We're people who follow the Bible. And so those who aren't Christians and even those who don't even believe in God, at least they do understand this, that a Christian is somebody who is supposed to live by the Bible. And so that means that we have a special affinity for the Bible. It means something very special to us. It's, it's a, one of the chief things that we have in our Christian lives. The Bible is our guidebook. This is what defines our faith. It's absolutely indispensable for a Christian, especially when it comes to warfare, because without the Bible, a Christian without the Bible is like a soldier who goes to war without ever having been trained, with no idea how to defend himself, And obviously a soldier who does that is not going to be effective in the fight. So we have to have the Bible. I don't know about other branches of the service, but I am familiar with this because I have a a son-in-law who's in the Navy and and, uh, my family, lots of my family members served in the Navy. But the Navy gives a new recruit what's called a blue jacket manual. And the Blue Jacket Manual outlines everything that that sailor is supposed to know. He has to learn that. And uh, that will help him in his career in the Navy. Well, the Blue Jacket Manual, maybe you could compare that in a little way to, to the Bible, perhaps. But the Bible is far more important for a Christian soldier than, than the Blue Jacket Manual could ever be. Here's what Paul uh, writes about this in the book of Hebrews. This is Hebrews 4, verse number 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There the Scriptures tell us that the Bible is alive, the Bible is effectual, it energizes, and the Word of God is so precise, it says here, that it can divide between the soul and the spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the only weapon that we've been given that is both offensive and defensive. Now, here's what the Word of God does. The Word of God will protect you as a defensive weapon, but the Word of God is also the thing that you use to go forth and to conquer. Charles Spurgeon wrote on this verse, and he said, No longer is it talk and debate. No longer is it parley and compromise. The word of thunder is, Take the sword. The captain's voice is clear as a trumpet. Take the sword. I could just hear Charles Spurgeon preaching that message, and I I believe he had a militant voice as he said this. The Bible is our authority, and this is the weapon that God has given us to take the world by storm. Let's read about this. This evening we're going to talk about the quick and the powerful sword. If you stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We're going to start once again in, in verse number 13, and we'll start there and read down to verse number 17. 
Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Heavenly Father, as we study tonight, we just ask you, Lord, you would open up your word. Help us to understand really what the sword of the Spirit is and how important this is for Christian soldiers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's look once again there at verse number 17. This is the text. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Glance back up at verse number 14, if you would. And there the scripture says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now, it's been some time since we talked about that weapon. I mean, that was the very first one in the list. And the question, if you remember, about that verse is, What does Paul mean by the truth? And I brought this out that I believe that what this really means is that a Christian has to know the whole complement of all of Christian doctrine. A Christian needs to know what the Bible says about the Christian faith. He needs to understand the doctrines of God's Word. He needs to be able to define those different things. And he needs to be able to defend the doctrines of God's Word because these are the very things that the world tries to pervert. But when we come here to verse number 17 and Paul speaks about the Word of God... He's not using this in the same sense as he does in verse 14. Verse 14 is the whole complement of Scripture. It's like the objective and apologetic system of argument that you use to prove the many different doctrines of the Bible. But here in verse number 17, this is something that's more pointed. And excuse that pun since we're talking about the sword of the Spirit. But this is more pointed because here this means that you know a particular scripture in the Word of God, and you're able to use the scripture when a certain need arises. Most of you know that when you see the phrase in the Bible that says the Word of God, that the word there, the word that's used for word, the Greek word is logos. And logos is where the word from which we get logic. And so when you use this this in that sense, this means like an argument, logic is when you reason things out, when you figure it out, when you put everything together to solve a problem and present an argument. That's what the Word of God is talking about when it uses the word logos. But here, in verse number 17, it's not that word. It's not logos. This is the word rima. And when you see the word rima... That means that this is an individual word of God. This is a particular statement that's made in the Bible, and that's what you use. And so what this is telling us is that you need to have a working knowledge of the Bible so that whenever you need to do it, you can pull up a verse, you understand where to find it in the Bible, and you can address a particular question when you're asked about that. Now, I'm going to confess to you that when it comes to memorization, I'm not the best in the world at remembering things. I'm not the best at remembering all different kinds of Bible verses. Here's a place, you know, I really admire uh, John Getch down at uh, West Coast Baptist College because I understand that that he has 11,000 verses of Scripture committed to memory. A couple of years ago, I was at a, maybe three years ago now, I was at a conference in Reno, and there was a man in the conference who stood up and quoted the entire book of 1 John word for word. 
And that wasn't the only book that he knew. He could quote many books of the Bible word for word. I promise you I'm not able to do that. I don't know 11,000 verses of Scripture by heart, but one of the things that God has enabled me to do in a different way is that uh, having studied the Word of God, I recognize when the Scriptures speak on a particular subject And I know enough about that subject that I can go to the Word of God and I can explain that and figure those things out and use that when I need it. Now, that's what Paul's talking about here. In just a few minutes, we're going to see probably the most vivid example in the Scripture of where someone used the Word of God point by point to refute an attack. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But let's start with this this evening. And uh, I'll try to help you out on this outline and so we get everything filled out right. The first thing we're going to talk about is the source of the sword. The source of the sword. Where did we get the sword? I don't think that's too much of a problem for most of us. Most of us here, all of us here, are very confident about where the Word of God came from. And that phrase, the Word of God, is really its own definition of where it came from. This is God's Word. We got the Scriptures, we got the the Bible here from God Himself. Now, unfortunately, there are many people who like to use the descriptive phrase Christian, call themselves Christians, but they really don't care very much at all about the book that tells us what a Christian actually is. And so you find people out there that want to define Christianity for you, but they really don't understand what Christians are because they haven't gone to the Bible that tells us exactly what Christians are. A few weeks ago, we had a sign up here outside of our building, a a sign for our school, and there were some people in the neighborhood that didn't like that sign. And we got a call from some people, and, and they said, that's not Christian. I've had some people that tell me that, the, the titles of some of the sermons that I've had on our other sign out there, I mean, the, what the thing I'm going to preach on, they've said, that's not Christian. Now, that's kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, it comes from people probably that haven't read five words in the Bible in the last 10 years. They have no idea what the Bible says, what a Christian is. So uh, people don't really recognize the true source of the Bible. The Bible's most descriptive phrase of where it came from is that it is the Word of God. And so if it's the Word of God and we recognize it as the Word of God, we understand it's the Word of God, we see that uh, we can never get to the bottom of these Scriptures, we can never exhaust the teachings of the Bible, we can never be successful without the Bible, then that surely ought to tell us how important this is for every single Christian. The Bible is the most precious possession that any of us has. Now, let me mention some important aspects of Scripture tonight. Number one, or letter A on your listening sheet, is the Word is Spirit-inspired. The Word is Spirit-inspired. When we discussed the belt of truth, we talked about inspiration of Scripture. Uh, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Remember what that phrase, inspiration of God, means? Actually, that whole phrase, inspiration of God, is one word, theonoustos. And what it actually means, literally translated, is the breath of God. The scriptures are God-breathed. Here's what Peter says. We also, or we have also, a more sure word of prophecy... Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, 
until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Now, for sure, God used men as he wrote the Bible. He used the personalities of the different men. He used their styles of writing. Those things are different. That's why you can pick up the Bible. If you've read enough Scripture, you can identify things that are written by Paul in distinction, for instance, of things that are written by John. They have a little bit different style. They have a different personality. Their character shines through in their writings. But what was written is not their words. They wrote down God's words, and God just used their characters and their abilities. Now, when Peter says that no prophecy of the Scripture is in any private interpretation, what he means there is that uh, these things that we find in the Bible, this is not the outcome of the prophet's musings. It's not their thoughts on some subject, and so they decided what they really needed to write down. These aren't the prophet's thoughts. These aren't the prophet's own words. This is really all God's idea. And so what we have then is fallible men. That's to be sure because all men are fallible. All, all of us are human. But these fallible men wrote down the perfect, infallible word of God. And that's because the Holy Spirit directed that process. Now, the original scriptures, uh, the original scriptures uh, were penned. Uh, the, each of these you know, books that we have in the Bible, they were penned by different writers. But they're the product of a spirit-filled mind. And so what these men are, they're just like a stenographer. They're a stenographer that writes down the words of God. Now, what we have here in our King James Bible, and I guess just probably everybody tonight, most of you have a King James Bible, uh, what we have here is not the original autographs. And what I mean by that, what you see written in the Word of God here is, is not the original things that uh, the actual manuscript that Paul and the other, other people wrote down. And we don't have that any longer. Now, obviously, Paul and John and Peter and all the other writers didn't know English, and so they weren't sitting there writing down English words for us to read. So what we have is a translation. And even if they could write in English, those original manuscripts are long gone. No, nobody's ever seen the original autographs of the Bible. But you know, it doesn't really matter. And that's because the Holy Spirit enabled men to write down the Word. But the same Holy Spirit that enabled them and gave them the Word is the same Spirit that preserved the Word. And God is able to do that. Some years ago, there was a, there was a man who asked me if, uh, if I believed that the King James Bible was an inspired translation. And I said, no, it's not an inspired translation because God didn't inspire the translators in the same way that he inspired the men who, who wrote the Scriptures. But I did say to him, I said, I believe that it is a guarded translation. And what I meant by that is God was well able to, to work with those translators and make sure that they translated the Word of God accurately. And so we have full confidence that when we pick up this, we are actually reading the words of God. I mean, this is what God gave to it. So we don't have to leave anything out of this. We don't have to add anything to it because we can safely accept this, that this is God's word to us. So, so we don't need to worry, is it true, is it not true? I also know that the translators of the King James Bible believed in verbal plenary inspiration. Now, verbal means that, that God spoke it. 
plenary means that it's complete. So we don't have to have any new revelation from God today. We're not expecting any new revelation because God gave us everything that we need to know right here. God's not given anybody any new scriptures today. Now, unfortunately, uh, there are people who worked on the newer translations, and uh, many of those people, some of them, did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They translated the Bible without even believing that the Bible is actually God's Word. Some of them did not believe in the miracles of the Bible. And some of them went so far as that they don't even believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why you need to watch very carefully about the newer translations that are out there. But God spoke the word, and all of it's true. And unless all of it's true, then we can't have any confidence that any of it's true. If there's any mistake in the Bible, then that means that every word that we read is suspect. And so I say there aren't any mistakes in the Bible. We trust it as God's word. The Holy Spirit is the inspiration of the word. Now, secondly, the word is spirit directed spirit directed and so that means that this bible that i hold in my hand this is a dead book listen to the rest of my statement it's a dead book unless the holy spirit directs the word unless the holy spirit is working through the word when the holy spirit sends out the word then the bible comes alive Now, if I stand here today and I open up the Scriptures, I I open up uh, this translation of the Word of God, and I start to preach to a message that's filled with all kinds of inaccuracies, if I make misstatements, if there are misinterpretations of the Word of God, then the Bible won't have any effect. And you know that in pulpits all across America, there are preachers who stand there and they open up this very same Bible. That is, if they care to open it at all, because many of them don't, But they open up the very same Bible and then they preach and they proceed to pervert the message of God. A perverted message is not a Holy Spirit-directed message. And so it's not going to accomplish what God uh, would have it to accomplish. Now, now, in Isaiah chapter 55, most of you are familiar with this, and if you want to look it up, it's a good, good thing for you to circle, to read, and know where this Scripture is. But Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, the Bible says... For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it to bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Most of the time you hear people read verse 11 but they don't read verse number 10 that comes in front of it. Verse number 10 is what gives meaning and life to verse number 11. Because God says that as he sends the the rain down, as he sends the snow down, and that waters the earth and gives the earth life and nourishment, then he says, my word does exactly the same thing in a spiritual way. When the word of God is spoken from someone with a mouth that speaks the truth and directed by the Holy Spirit, the word of God always accomplishes God's purpose. It convicts the heart. It changes men. It brings men from death to life as they learn about the knowledge of Christ. Now that leads me right into this third observation because these work hand in hand. The word is spirit comprehended. It's spirit-comprehended. The Holy Spirit has to reveal this word to the hearer. Not just anybody understands the word of God, 
And, and that's the very reason why people, most people don't read it. It's why they don't treasure the Word of God. It's why the Word doesn't become the rule of their lives. They simply do not understand the Word. And so they don't, they don't attach any importance to it. Now, why don't they? Well, 1 Corinthians tells us, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, uh, Paul writes here, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Now, natural man there, he's talking about the lost man, the, the man without any spiritual direction. He says, He does not understand the things of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. I don't know why Baptist preachers don't see that. There, there are so many that deny the irresistible working of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. And God very clearly says in the word that we just read that this word will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. When God uses that word, when someone speaks the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God has the intention to save, that word will accomplish exactly what God sends it to do. And so when God opens the heart of a sinner, what do you think the result's going to be? When he opens a person's heart, when the gospel's being preached, what's that person going to do? He will, without fail, trust Jesus Christ as his Savior because the Word accomplishes its purpose. And so when the Word goes out and the Holy Spirit doesn't work, there is no accomplishment. Now, people don't just naturally understand this. They just don't recognize who God is. You know how I know that? Because God himself was here on the earth and people didn't recognize who he was. Jesus came and he performed miracles. He spoke the truth of the word. He even arose from the dead. And people saw it and most of them didn't believe in him. Why, why are there some people who believe that and some didn't? Well, we have the answer to that in 1 Corinthians as well. 1 Corinthians 2 verses 9 through 12. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to the person with that information, that's when the Word of God accomplishes its purpose. So I don't understand how, how preachers stand in pulpits and they teach us in our colleges today that the Holy Spirit can be resisted and that you're the one who decides your salvation. That's a denial of the Scripture. The Scripture says the Holy Spirit will direct this Word. He enables the comprehension of the Word, and it will accomplish its purpose. Now, either it accomplishes its purpose or it doesn't. God said it does. I'll trust the Word of God. So if, if the Bible says that the Word doesn't return void, and it accomplishes its purpose, and when the Holy Spirit directs it, that, that means that when the Word comes to any, any man, any woman, any boy, any girl... When the Holy Spirit is directing, that person will trust Christ. Now, that's how I preach the sovereignty of God. Now, make this note in your listening sheet, if you would. You cannot separate the Spirit and the Word. You cannot separate the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit and the Word always go together. They always work together. You have some people who like to over overemphasize the Spirit to exclusion of the Word... And so those are the people that are looking for new revelations. They're looking for God to, to give them some kind of a word of knowledge. 
But the Bible has everything that we need to know right here. The Word of God used by the Holy Spirit, will meet and answer every question there is in this life. There's nothing that's left out here. And so when uh, somebody gets big on the Spirit and they don't open up God's Word to expound it and preach from God's Word, then you're in trouble. So be careful of people that, that rely on the Spirit to the exclusion of the Word. But then you have a problem on the other side because people that rely on the Word to the exclusion of the Spirit. And so they think that they can pick up the Bible and they begin to read the Bible. They don't pray about it. They don't ask for Holy Spirit guidance. And what happens then? Well, what you have are black words on white paper. Or if you're reading the words of Christ, maybe you have red words on white paper. And that's all it amounts to. Because the Holy Spirit does nothing with it. It falls on deaf ears. If there is no Spirit, the Word of God is useless. So it always goes together. You can't separate the Spirit and the Word. Now let's go on because in the second part of the message, I want to show you this, and that is the resources of the sword. The resources of the sword. All of what I've said so far, this is all just setting the stage for what Paul has to say about Christian warfare. And and the whole point that we're trying to get here is how do you use the Word of God as a sword? Now, as I said already, there's a little bit different meaning here of the Word of God as used in verse 14 as in verse 17. Verse 14 is the entire complement of Christian doctrine that you speak in an apologetic manner. That's arguing the Word of God. That's presenting an argument. But here, this is the pointed use of the Word of God to use the Scriptures to meet the challenge of the enemy. Now, I told you there's a very vivid example of this in the Bible of how the Word of God was used to meet the challenge or the attacks of the enemy. Turn to Matthew chapter 4, if you would, please. hope most of you know where I'm going with this because Matthew chapter 4 is right after the baptism of Jesus. Remember, John the Baptist said, uh, told Jesus, I, I don't want to baptize you. But Jesus said, well, you need to baptize me because that's what it's going to take to fulfill all righteousness. Well, there, that was a great spiritual experience. I mean, there Jesus was baptized. The, uh, uh, he came up out of the water, and the Bible says that God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. There was a dove. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came and, and settled on Jesus Christ. Man, what, what a totally spiritual experience. I mean, about as high as you could possibly get. But right after the high spiritual experience, what happens? Here comes the temptation. And you know that happens a lot to us as Christians. The moment that you get on a spiritual high, when God's really done something great for you, who, who shows up? Who comes next? The devil. And what he tries to do, he tries to knock you down from that high spiritual experience. That's exactly what he did with Jesus. Now look at Matthew chapter 4, verse number 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights... He was an afterward unhungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered, Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and set it upon the pinnacle of the temple. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time 
thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up to an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now here is the best example you can find in all of the scriptures where somebody took the word of God and deflected attacks. So here comes the temptation. And what does Jesus do? Slash, 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 slash. There with his sword, he blocks the attempts of Satan. Satan says, if thou be the son of God. And Jesus comes back with a sword, slash, slash, and he says, it is written. And then Satan comes back and he starts to quote scripture himself. Did that phase Jesus? No, because the, the devil was not speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit. He didn't know how to use the Word of God. The, uh, the Holy Spirit's not directing him. That doesn't phase Jesus. And so he comes back and he says, it is written. He, he flashes that sword again. And then Satan, Satan comes to him and he says, it is, he says, you do this, fall down, worship me. And Jesus takes the sword and slashes one more time, deflects the blow and says, it is written. Now, where is it written? That's the important thing, isn't it? He said it is written. Then he quoted scripture. Where is it written? Man shall not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Deuteronomy six sixteen. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Deuteronomy six thirteen. And so Jesus knew the scriptures. And so when Satan comes along and he tries to have his way with him, Jesus just throws up that sword and he blocks every attempt of Satan. Now, I wish I had tonight the, the PowerPoint because I had some pictures to show you. But how many of you ever seen uh, Olympic fencing? I'm not talking about building fences now. I'm talking about fencing, you know, with swords. You ever seen that? And you watch these guys fence, and one of them takes a, a jab like this, and the other fellow there, he steps aside, and he hits that and knocks the sword away. Then this guy changes from defense to offense, and he starts to advance, and he starts to flick that sword at him. He tries to stab that guy, and they're going back and forth and back and forth. Each time they're trying to block the blows of the other person. That's what you do with the Word of God. Every time the devil comes at you with a temptation, when people come to you and try to, and try to tell you the Bible's not true or they've got some doctrine that they're trying to lay out there, you just take the sword of the Spirit and you flash it at them and you deflect that blow. When Satan throws that fiery dart, you flick it off with the sword. How many of you ever watched Zorro? You know, I love Zorro. When I was little, I loved Zorro. Zorro, you know, big Z everywhere, you know. But you ever see somebody... Yeah, the guys that they can't fight with Zorro, they can't beat him with the sword, so they back off over here and they pick up something and they throw it at Zorro. And Zorro goes, flex it off. Doesn't phase him at all. Doesn't, doesn't bother him at all. That's what you do with the Word of God. You do exactly the same thing. So that Jehovah Witness shows up your door and he says to you, Jesus is not Jehovah God and Jesus never claimed to be God. So what do you do? You take out the sword of the Gospel of John. And you start to read to him and you say, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I give unto them eternal life. My father holds them in their hand. Nobody's going to pluck them out of my hand. Then he says, I and my father are one. 
Did the Jews interpret Jesus to mean that he was saying that he was one with Jehovah God? You bet your life he did because you know what they did next? They picked up stones to stone him because they thought he was guilty of blasphemy. He claimed to be God. So when the Jehovah Witness comes to your door, you take out the Gospel of John and many other scriptures just like that, and you flick him off. Throw it, deflect the blows. He can't touch you. Oh, what about when somebody comes to you and says, well, you can be saved by by doing good works. What do you do? You take out the sword and you flick it off and you say, well, the Bible says, here it is, that faith is counted for righteousness. You flick it off with the sword. And then somebody comes along and they say, well, uh, you can lose your salvation. There's so many swords for that, but I can't even get into it all. But you can just flick them off with all of them. That's an impossible, an impossible situation. You know the word of God, you knock down the blows. Now, somebody comes along and says, you know, over there at Brian Baptist, you don't do it right. Women are supposed to be able to speak in the church. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've got one for that too. And so you just flick it off with that scripture. On and on it goes. You see, the sword of the Spirit, this is the rapier that fends off Satan's attack. So we're not just talking about an overview of doctrine here. This is not verse 14. This is verse 17. We're not talking about overview of doctrine. We're talking about specific scripture that answers the blows of Satan. Now, it's already 8 o'clock, so I've got to hurry. Uh, is it 8 o'clock? Is that clock right? It is right tonight. Okay. All right, then we're in, we're in hurry mode now. Here's what we need to do. Finish, let's finish up here. Three resources of Scripture we need to talk about. The first one is, letter A on your listening sheet, the Word convicts. When the Holy Spirit is using the Word, it has convicting power. 99.9% of the time, when I get up to preach a message, I have no idea if any particular point is going to touch any particular person. Most of the time... As you know, most of you know, my messages are prepared four, sometimes five weeks in advance. And so it's impossible for me to pick out somebody that I'm going to, you know, speak to in the congregation. I've been told that it's wrong to prepare messages so far in advance. Uh, There are preachers who say you can't do that. What you have to do is that uh, Sunday's coming up, so you've got to pray that the Lord is going to give you the message for the person who needs it who's going to be there this Sunday. Well... I get the message on Wednesday. It's four days until Sunday. I think if God knows who's going to be there in four days, he knows who's going to be there in four weeks. He knows every circumstance. He knows everything that's going to happen. And so I don't worry about that. He, he can put the message in the mind a year ago if he wants to and plan it a year in advance, and he'll have the person there who needs to hear what needs to be preached. So I'm not worried about how long ahead of time I prepare the messages. So uh, I don't know how many countless times there are that people come to me, and, and the message that I preached, or prepared rather, four weeks ago, they'll come up to me and they'll say, how did you know that I was going through that? How did you know that, that, that I needed the thing that you're preaching today? That sermon was just for me. I had no idea. But God did. He uses the word to convict. Sometimes I amaze myself. I write a sermon, and, and four weeks after I write a sermon, I, I've forgotten what I've written. And so what I do is when it comes time to preach that sermon, I sit back down, I go back over it, I, I, I get it ready, review it, and, and get it you know all cleaned up for the for the preaching, and then sometimes uh, I kind of get cold chills when I find out that as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm right here this week, for, 
getting that sermon back ready again, and I find out that there is something going on in the church right at that very moment that that sermon's going to address. Now, I said, I amaze myself. I'm kidding about that. God amazes me how he's able to do that. So the word, it convicts. It burns in the heart. You know, a gospel, a gospel message is just like a coal of fire in a person's soul. When the Holy Spirit uses that message, that word burns down in that person. And many, many times they cannot wait to do something about it. They have to do it because it convicts. They can't even sit still because the Holy Spirit is convicting that person. You know, that, that happens for believers as well. I'm not just talking about unbelievers, but if you're, you, you're involved in some kind of sin and the preacher gets up there and without even knowing, without even knowing what you've done, he preaches a message and, and God has it prepared for you and that word burns down in you until you have to repent of that sin and get right with God. God knows how to do that. So the word, that's, uh, the word's a great resource for sinners and for saints. All of us need conviction. Now then, also, the word converts. And folks, nothing but the word will convert. I've seen people that can reform. I've seen lots of people that kind of clean up their act a little bit and they're sorry over things that they've done. But it's only the word that converts. It's only the word that, that takes a person that's mired in sin and that word takes and washes him inside and out. You know, there's some people say, you know, Pastor Smith over there, Brian, he doesn't believe in the word. He just thinks that God elects people to salvation and God says, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, off to heaven you go. And that's the end of it. No way, folks. The only way that any person is saved by, is by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must believe the gospel in order to be saved. And here's the thing about God. He is so wise. He is just so smart that not only did he ordain the people of salvation, but he also ordained the way that they would be saved. And that's through the preaching of the gospel. Nothing but the gospel ever converts any lost sinner. But you know something? The word is so powerful that when it does convert, it, it causes you to be eternally saved. I mean, you can't take this away. You're eternally secure. It is so powerful that the word of God preserves you in the faith. Then finally, the word comforts. Oh, it convicts, it converts, and it comforts. See, the Bible's not just about your initial salvation. It's not just about the moment that you accepted Christ and got the devil out of you. It's not just about that. The Bible is hard, it's tough, it's militant when it needs to be. I mean, just like Spurgeon, when he preached it, you know, I think, as I said, I think he had a militant tone in his voice when he said, take the sword of the Spirit. But for a person who knows Jesus Christ, the Word also becomes your comfort. The Word becomes your consoler. The Word can take hard, hard to deal with circumstances and soften the blow so you can handle it. These past few weeks, we've had some of our dear old saints in church that you know, passed away. And we're sorry for that. We're, we're, we're sorry to hear it. Uh, these folks left lifelong mates behind them. It's a, it's a sad thing. But when you begin to read the Word of God and you see that God has an eternal place prepared, when you see that, that there is a bodily resurrection, when you see there's going to be a reunion in heaven, when you see all of that, when you know there's going to be a resurrection, those are words of comfort to a husband, to a wife, to a mother or father who's lost somebody. You know what Paul said in, in uh, 
First uh, Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 18, he said, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Listen to the next verse. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. He says in Second Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. How do you suppose that, that Paul was comforted himself? Reading the word of God. How did he comfort the Corinthians? He was writing the word of God to them. And he said, this will comfort you. So we see this then. The word of God has a fighting aspect. And that's what we've been talking about. I mean, we're talking about Christian warfare. It has the fighting aspect. When you need defense, the word of God is there for your defense. When you need offense, then you're able to go out there and conquer the world with the gospel of Christ. But when you need comforting and you need soothing and you need consoling, you have the word of God as well. Now, the people of the world, they say to you, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep your chin up. Things are going to get better tomorrow. And they go on their way. What's their basis for saying that? How do they know things are going to get better? What faith are they talking about when they say keep the faith? How do they know things are going to get better? I know things will get better because the Bible tells me they're going to get better. And not only that, they're going to get so good, I can't even explain how good they're going to get. And so I know things are getting better. Many times David wrote about the comfort of the word of God. He talked about sustaining power. He said in the Psalms, Remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction. Thy word hath quickened me. Now let me finish. Here's your last statement on your listening sheet tonight. If you don't know the Bible, it's not because of inability. It's because of neglect. And what I mean is if you are a child of God, God has promised you that he's going to give you the Holy Spirit to help you to understand his word. It's not because you don't have the ability to understand it. That's past. When you become a Christian, the ability to understand God's word is past because now you have the Spirit of God living in you. And so you can use that Spirit to understand the Scripture. So this is what the Bible is. It's the strength for the Christian life. Now, I told you in the beginning, even lost people know this. Christians are supposed to be people of the Word. They're people that follow the Bible. So I don't think it's any any accident that Paul said, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's a part of our armor, and we need it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend together tonight. Lord, just, just help us to be people of the Word. Help us to understand it better. Send your Spirit, Lord. May we have the interest that we need to have to use the Word of God in every situation of life. May we know it as a sword that deflects all the fiery darts of the wicked. Bless our people tonight, Lord, in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.